0: Hey, everybody, it's Tommy Canalli and welcome to Before the Lights Podcast, the show to find out how those in sports, music, and entertainment made their mark. It's holiday time, which means shopping, so get your merch. Beforethelightspod.com slash merch. That's beforethelightspod.com slash merch. You asked for it, we brought him back. The founder and chief wine officer for SOM Select one of just over 200 master sommeliers in the world. He was featured in the wine documentary called Somm. Once again, here he is, Ian Cobble. Ian, welcome back, my man.
1: What's going on? Good to be here.
0: Thanks for having me. Absolutely. We're going to taste some wines that you have sent me, and I'm excited to do that. I have a special guest with me on the show to do that with me as well. My mother, Cheryl, is going to join us on the show to taste some wines as well in a minute. But Ian, I want to start on a few things that we didn't get to on the first show. And the first thing I want to touch base with you is the master's test is the hardest in the world with just a 5% pass rate. Do you feel like that pass rate is legit or is it should be even lower than 5%? Well, you have to
1: realize that the people that are showing up have already been putting everything in their life on hold for five to 10 years to show up. So it's like, you have a bunch of PhDs in wine showing up to take the test. And amongst that group, you have a 5% pass rate. So it's not like, you know, people have been studying for a year and they show up, they've literally been working in restaurants for um, most of the time, five, seven, 10 years, sometimes 15 years. And then they don't, some people never pass and they'll take it eight or 10 years in a row. And it's, it's hard because I have some friends who have tried and tried and tried and you just didn't have your day. It's just like you make it to the super bowl and you got to the one yard line with 10 seconds left and just didn't get past that line. It's, it's a frustrating thing. Uh, You know, I count my lucky stars every day that I got through. It took me three attempts, which is the average number of attempts is about 3.3. So most people take it an average of three or four times, but the stressful part is if you don't pass all three parts of the test, the service the tasting and the theory. If you don't pass all three parts within three years, you have to start over from scratch. And so I was facing that in the people that watched the movie Psalm at the end of it. When I passed, I was pretty relieved because if I didn't pass, not only would the end of the movie been me failing, which would have been a little tough, but I would have had to literally start all over on all parts. And each part of the test is extremely tough um, in its own right. And you have to take each part on separate days. So uh, long story short, I'm uh, I wake up and I definitely am appreciative that I had my days and I passed and I, you know, I worked hard and I got the result I wanted, but um, not everybody's that lucky.
0: You said it took you three times after each time that you did not pass. I know it's probably upsetting, but did it motivate you more or did you have to find a drive to get back at it? You know,
1: I was I'm hyper motivated by failure. I mean, because I, you know, I don't like to fail. I don't think anybody does. Um, it didn't really bother me in like high school or college because I didn't really care about the subject matter. If it was like American history and I got to be minus or whatever it was, I wasn't like keeping myself up at night. But um, wine is my passion. It's my life. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of many competitions that go on that we kind of all show up to starting off, you know, in our mid 20s to try to like test our stuff and go against the best of the country. So you really start, you know, with, you know, the local competition, the regional competition, worldwide competitions, if you get through it. And uh, luckily I had some success there, but um, it, it, it trains you for those days and uh, you just got to keep working hard at it. And uh, if you fail at something, there's a reason. And there's usually an Achilles heel that you need to strengthen to get through it and uh, whether you know one day you'll show up and you'll have service and you have a big restaurant full of master sommeliers that you have to go table by table doing decanting exercises cocktail um, uh, specifics on cocktails or water recommendations from around the world based on sparkling or non or gin recipes based on different historical areas of the world and having to talk about that so if you don't pass that service examination but you pass the other two parts you hold those other two parts for three years. And then the next year you only have to take service. So some people never pass service and that's their, their Achilles seal. And, uh, and then some people never pass tasting, you know, and some people like for me, tasting was my strongest part, but I, I just made mistakes each time and doubted myself and made, made, uh, changes 30 seconds left, you know, and, you know, each one, I missed it by one wine where if I would have just gone with my gut, I would have passed my first time, but I didn't. So I, and then the second time I switched my answers. And then, so you just, you go home kicking yourself a little bit because you should always just trust your gut. But sometimes you don't know if you should trust your gut because there's information happening on your palate that, and the stress that you go through and the level of cortisol in your blood, because there's so much on the line. Um, because if you don't pass, you got to spend another 500 hours the next year and not see your friends and your family. And, you know, I didn't have any kids or, you know, wife at the time I do now, but uh, that's even tougher. I mean, I have friends who have wife and kids and they're trying to pass this thing. And I, and I'm, you know, I feel for them for sure.
0: I'm going to put a link in the show notes to the documentary Psalm. I highly recommend you watch that if you want to watch Ian go through hell and frustration and everything else. <laughs> yeah. You can. I don't, like, <laughs> I don't. I don't enjoy watching myself. I'll bet you yeah. don't. Like, hey, yeah. what, what's the difference between an advanced sommelier and a master sommelier?
1: So there's four levels. So there's the introductory level, which is uh, you know pretty much a two day course, and you take a test. It's pretty high pass rate, like ninety percent. Uh, And then you have the next levels, the certified sommelier. It's a uh, an exam, a three-part exam that's, you know, a few hours, about an hour too long. And, uh, and that pass rate, I think is now it was 60. I think it's below 50% now, depending on the test. And then if you pass your certified, then you can get to the advanced exam, uh, the advanced exam, the pass rate even goes lower, I think to around 20 to 30%. Now the numbers keep changing. I haven't seen in the last year, uh, but, uh, and then the master's test goes down to 5%, but the major difference between the advanced, the advanced is kind of like, you know, getting, you know, graduating university in wine. And then the master's degree is more like a PhD, but you're the best of the best of the PhDs. So, um, the, if you pass the advanced, you're, you're an incredible wine professional, you're hireable, by all the top restaurants in the world, you know that all the regions, subregions, districts and classic wines and can blind taste them. And then to pass the master, you have to know really deep levels within the regions and sub and the wines that are blind tasted are more difficult. The service questions are more difficult and it's more of like, OK, you know, Burgundy, let me put a laser beam on this map. And what is this village? And can you name five producers? And can you talk a little bit about a little bit more in detail? Um, because if you are a master sommelier, you should be, um, really able to recite not just the regions and sub but what is important, what's going on there. How is the wine made, um, uh, what producers are important to talk about being able to talk specifically about the producers and what the wines taste like in certain vintages. And that's really the art of the game, uh, coming tableside and wowing people and, you know, making that 300 or $400 bottle of Burgundy, even more interesting because you, the glasses are perfect. The, the, the whole setting, the tableside chat really excites people about the world of wine, which is our job. And that's what Psalm Select really does is we, we aim to bring that sommelier experience home where you don't have to spend, you know, double retail on a bottle of wine. You can, you know, listen to us and buy the right glassware, find the recipes we recommend on our daily offers and hopefully enliven your life through, you know, the art and the craft of what we've, you know, kind of honed our skills in is really bringing people happiness through beverage. And um, whether that's a cocktail, whether that's a specific water coming from, you know, Apollinaris from Germany, which is high mineral content, which is delicious, or you have all sorts of different ways to interact with beverage and food. And uh, I find it quite entertaining myself.
0: Ian, what's it mean to you to be named best young sommelier in the world under 35 years old? It was good. Um, you know, I'm 41 now I'm getting older. Uh,
1: but, uh, you know, I, uh, so I, I basically represented, you know, the Western United States. I ended up winning that winning the United States. And then I got in, uh, I was saying I represented the United States in Athens, Greece, which was an adventure. So I flew into Athens with a quick layover in Amsterdam. I won't go into that layover, but, um, uh, and so I, so I landed in, so I, I, yeah, talk about the show, the layover too bad. I'm glad there wasn't, uh, Never mind. Um, but that was funny. And then we got into Athens and, uh, ended up winning and luckily bringing home the gold for the United States. But that was about 10 years ago. Uh, it was 2011. So, but that was a, you know, good example of kind of the training ground that you kind of go through, uh, to, uh, to train, to show up to the masters, and be ready. You, 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 you sign up for every and any competition. It's just like, if you want to go to the Olympics, like you better play every single local tennis tournament you have, if you want to go, you know, play Wimbledon or, you know, Roland Garros, like, you know, you better be, you know, practicing every single second. And that's pretty much, you know, what it, what the wine game is. It's, you know, you have to constantly be honing your skills, blind tasting, studying maps and regions and flashcards. And then you show up to the master's exam and have a good day and hopefully pass. But, um, you know, the people who decide not to really let it overtake every aspect of their life. Usually don't get through like you can't, you can't just put 94% in you got to put 102% in and become maniacal. I'm just kidding. But um, (laughs) 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 laugh about it back now, but but, um, back in the day, it's like, you know, every moment of your life is focused on, you know, getting the gold pretty much. So.
0: We hinted about this the first time that we spoke and you were on the show you worked in Las Vegas. Where all did you work here in Vegas? And what were your titles? I'll tell the real story. So I, so I was at Burning Man in 2007
1: and I came home and the boss at this restaurant I was working at in Orange County, she was like, where'd you go? And I said, I went to Burning Man. She's like in the middle of summer. I was like, yeah, well, the general manager let me have the time off. And she said, you can't just take off time in the summer. I said, listen, I know you're the owner, but I report to the general manager you know, talk to them. I asked for this time off six months ago, and I'm sorry that you're upset, but this is not my fault. And, uh, she got mad at me long story short. Her husband, who was my boss was like, you're fighting with my wife. This can't happen. You have to apologize. I was like, I did nothing wrong. And he's like, okay, well let's part ways. And I said, I have no problem with that. So I drove to Vegas and, uh, and I interviewed for a number of places and, you know, the most you know, I was looking to become a master sommelier, right? I was 26. I was a certified sommelier. And if you want to learn to levitate, you know, you go stay with Yoda, right? And it so happens that there was two master sommeliers that were opening up a five-star strip club, and they needed three sommeliers to manage this 1200 selection wine club. So, um, so the, my first job was opening up a $24 million strip club uh, right across from where the new uh, city center is. And that was an adventure. So we trained the whole staff. We had an incredible team. There was uh, a master sommelier named Stephen Geddes who worked in the back of the house as executive chef, uh, who was incredible. And he hired all the top people from all the Michelin starred restaurants. So we had an insane culinary team. And then we had an, an incredible front of the house sommelier team. It just so happened that it was in a gentleman's club. So we had like a sushi bar in front with incredible food and wine pairings, we were serving Eken by the glass with frog rau terrine, and uh, that place ended up. You know, it was called the Men's Club. Uh, if people are listening to this, they might have been there. And uh, uh, and then I left there and I became the wine director at Fleur de Lease. The place only lasted about six months, and then I went to Fleur de Lease and I was the wine director at Florida Lease um, for the next year and a half or two years, and then I left uh, to uh, pursue an opportunity in San Francisco. But I I did uh, you know what three years in Vegas or so. And, uh, but it was amazing because I tasted so many amazing old wines. There was a restaurant called Oriol that's, that was next to Fleur de Lis, um, which is now called Fleur. And, uh, you know, we would have people come in and say they want to spend $20,000 in the tasting menu. And there was only two of them. And I'd, so I had seven courses to spend $20,000 off the wine list. So I'd call, you know, the wine director next door who had incredible, we shared kind of financial wine cellar, right? So he could transfer bottles of, to me, so they had 1900s, 1928s, 49s, 51s from all different parts of the world. So next thing you know, I get to you're here. It's like taking a bite of the Mona Lisa, right? You're you're able to experience these wines, which, you know, I would have to work for two weeks just to afford one bottle. And then but the people only drink four or five ounces of the 25 ounces. Right. And so you end up calling a group of sommeliers over, you know, to meet you at some, you know, a place, a neutral location after after the dinner, or come over to the restaurant, and next thing you know, you're drinking, you know, fifteen or twenty thousand dollars for the wine as a post, uh, you know, a post uh, shift drink. You know, most <laughs> of the time people are drinking, you know, a little a, a cold Bud Light, but uh, we were drinking, you know, Petrus and uh, old Uwet Vouvres from twenty eight, you know, fifty three Chateau Tours, Like just, it was almost like a. I tell the stories and people are. It's hard to believe, but but it is true. <laughs>
0: let's talk about Thanksgiving wine pairings and food. You know, um,
1: so Thanksgiving is interesting. There's a, what is it called? A smorgasbord, I think is a word that people use where there's, (laughs) you know, you got turkey, you got light meat, you got dark meat. Some people have a roast, like, you know, uh, a prime rib, you have stuffing, mashed potatoes, you have your buttermilk croissants or at least I do with butter and poppy seeds and we have butternut squash that my mom makes with the marshmallows you know melting all over it so it really depends on what is in your bite but I think in general Thanksgiving really pairs well with light delicate Pinot Noir in particular organ Pinot Noir works really well um, as well as Beaujolais so in Beaujolais like for me if I was going to pick one wine that encapsulates Thanksgiving that is not American, even though it's a little sacrilege to say, Hey, drink a French wine on an American holiday. But you know, this is the world I live in, I love French wines. Beaujolais, there's 10 crews of Beaujolais from Moulin Avant, Fleury, Morgon, Brie, Cote de Brie, um, Regnier. There's all these different villages, but crew Beaujolais is one of the great price to quality um, areas of the world. So that's what I'm going to be drinking, is probably crew Beaujolais, but I'll start with champagne especially when your in-laws come over and, you know, you need to lubricate the conversation because you haven't seen them for a year. And you're asking them about how their kids doing and, you know, and and their nephews, et cetera, you know, you have a little champagne around noon when people start to come over and then, you know, work the blood alcohol up and then start to work into some like fresh white wines, like dry Riesling. And then when we're sitting down for dinner, we're usually putting some creamy white wines like Chardonnay, maybe some white Rhone's Beaujolais, of course, and sometimes, uh, if there's any uh, bigger, like roasts on the table, for example, prime rib, some years we'll do, uh, uh, we'll uh, we'll we'll put a little, some Italian wine, like Brunello di Montalcino, Barolo. Um, but for me, Pinot Noir, Gamay is the grape of Beaujolais, but Pinot Noir is the grape of Burgundy. So those are both light, delicious. And if you're looking for the California pairing or something domestic from America, to to pay respect to the heritage, uh, Zinfandel, particularly dry Creek Zinfandel or Lodi Zinfandel. Uh, the flavors work really well with the stuffing gravy, dark meat, kind of uh, butternut squash flavors. Uh, but there's, there's, there's no wrong answer.
0: What about a dessert wine after dinner with the family with, okay. With pumpkin pie. Yes.
1: Okay. I'm, I'm going Madeira. So, um, there's, a. Uh, There's a company called the uh, Old Historic Series Madeira. Um, Also, you know from Broadbent, there's a there's a there's a a number of them. But vintage Madeira, if you just Google vintage Madeira, um, you'll find you'll find some great pairings. Um, Old Tawny Port also can work very well, um, as well as you know Sauternes. Sauterran is a great pairing. Um, And uh, you know if you're looking for a great way to enjoy like the late night. You know, you, if you eat it early, like us, five or six, everyone's hanging out and hangs out, throw out some blue cheese, a baguette, some really high quality butter and a bottle of sauteran late night. And you take the fresh baguette, make sure it's as good as you can get slather it up with the high quality grass fed butter or Normandy butter. If you're, you know, if you have access to some really good, dark golden butter, put that on the baguette with the room temperature, almost warm, like 75 degree blue cheese, have that with sauteran is one of the greatest pairings in the world. Most people don't know about it, uh, but that's that's really, it's more of an appetizer in Bordeaux. When you go to somebody's house, they have blue cheese, a baguette and butter because, you know, in the wintertime in Bordeaux, there's not really much fresh vegetables. So, you know, they're giving, you get pretty much <laughs> bread, cheese, sautering <laughs> and some really good butter. And it's uh, it's a life-changing pairing. Like, so if you haven't tried that pairing, get high quality blue cheese, uh, and, uh, and Sauterran is, is, fantastic, but pumpkin, but pumpkin pie and whipped cream, you know, for me, like good Marsala de Bartoli Marsala would be one that I would go to, um, uh, or vintage Madeira. There's, there's a lot of great companies look up Malmsey, um, or ball, uh, Madeira, and, uh, you can Google it, learn all about it, but that's, you know, having a good glass of you know, 10 or 20 year old Madeira, even older, if you can get it. Um, There's one called Boston Boal that you can look up. It's around 60 to 80 a bottle, I think. Currently might be a little more. I haven't bought it for a while, but Boston Boal is a really good one to buy and have that with pumpkin pie with the family. And they'll, everyone, everyone will want to come back to your house next year.
0: We're not talking about, you know, grab the tub of margarine and throw it on the table and slap that on a baguette either.
1: You know, if that makes you happy, I'm not going to judge you. But I don't, eat margarine.
0: Uh, I prefer the real thing. And
1: uh, you know, <laughs> margarine. That's funny. Yeah, I don't know if I. I don't know if I've had it actually. Since I was like maybe a friend's house when I was like eight, in like the Midwest, where my family's from. Like half of my mom's side is from uh, Moline in the Quad Cities, so uh, it's possible I I, I had it. I can't believe it's not butter once. I don't know if that's the same thing. But.
0: Well, our family is from central Illinois, and the people in the Midwest right now are going, what's wrong with this tub of butter that's on the table right now?
1: <laughs> oh, well,
0: I mean, margarine is not butter, is it? <laughs> <laughs> no, it is not. And we'll, we'll just leave that at that, everybody. Have a happy Thanksgiving. Enjoy yeah, the pairing okay. and enjoy the wine. And we're not judging. <laughs> we're not judging. We're going to get ready to taste some wines that you were kind enough to send me from psalmselect.com. My question is, Ian, where did this idea come from to start Psalm Select?
1: You know what? I had a good friend of mine who uh, was a was a close friend of mine in college, and um, when Psalm came out, he was actually at the Mendocino Film Festival, and I was up on stage talking about um, the stress I'd been through, and uh, and he knew that you know I was kind of going to be a personality uh, in the in the wine business um, for, for for obvious reasons after you watch the movie. And, uh, and he says, well, Hey, there's a lot of people doing these daily offer wine companies, right? Wine till sold out lot, 18, uh, last bottle wine. There was a lot of really, you know, interesting companies, but they were all pretty heavy discounters, right? It's a hundred dollar bottle of cab for 29 99, you know, it's, you know, but we wanted to kind of take that daily offer that digestible daily offer for free to stay in touch with us and bring that sommelier table side experience to your house, right? That way you can get an email and it'd be 500 or a thousand words about one wine. And it was, you know, wines that were tough to find that you would find on some of the greatest wine lists of the world. And, um, and we basically launched in the rest is history. We've, we keep, you know, uh, you know, we keep growing every year and, um, keep finding great wines in Europe, spending a lot of time in Europe. You know, I usually spend about three months out of the year in Europe traveling and, visiting with small families and um, COVID kind of slowed me down. So I haven't been over there um, since uh, late 2019, but um, that's, it's pretty much a dream come true because we get to, I get to taste wine and be walking the vineyards continuously learning about my passion. But at the same time we get to share and hopefully increase people's passion for food and beverage in a, you know, in an affordable way. I mean, the average price point, for per, per offers like $42. So things, you know, range from, you know, $20 to a thousand dollars a bottle. Yesterday, we did a 1989 Cheval Blanc um, as an offer, but the day before it might've been a Provence Rosé for $20. So um, most of the wines we offer are organic or biodynamically farmed summer, summer is highly sustainable. Um, and every offer comes with a food and wine pairing and we just, nobody had ever done it like we did. And we, it, it, you know people sold off points so this is a 29 100 dollar bottle of wine discounted 80% and it got 92 points and that was pretty much you're like okay I'm going to buy it based on that but then when you open it it tastes like 79 points right so you can't really judge a wine based on points and that's one of the my biggest kind of pet peeves in the wine business is when people show up and they're like this is a 97 point wine and you open it and you're like all right it's like, you know, it's like scoring a song. Like, how are you going to, you know, I would give Hey Jude like a hundred points. Right. But it's hard, (laughs) but it's hard to like really give something points to summarize how good it is. Right. There's so many layers. Um, It's like, wine is like people, you know, it's depends on the day. Um, You know, if you're two years old or 20 years old or 40 years old, there's a different conversation. Um, And there's so many different preferences within the world of wine that you know, one person's Beatles is another person's Metallica, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, it really depends on what your taste is and what your flavor profile likes. And, you know, your taste buds, we're all built differently and we all have different sensitivities to tannin and alcohol and sweetness. Um, some people like Moscato d'Asti, some people hate Moscato d'Asti, right? Um, I kind of have a place in my heart for everything, but the more and more I drink wine, the more. I craved the flavor of the earth and the dirt and great Barolo great Burgundy. You know, I don't really like fruit forward jammy wines anymore, even though I did when I was 20 or 21, I never drank before I was 21. Actually, (laughs) Uh, With that said uh, I'm continuously, you know, evolving. And now, you know, I'm learning more about like wines from Eastern Europe, like Georgia, like, you know, not Atlanta, Georgia, like, you know, the cradle of the the history of wine in Georgia Armenia lebanon israel croatia like there's so many incredible expressions around the world and the cool part is psalm select um, enables me to taste those and we can support the importers who bring these wines in in incredibly small quantities and you know we'll send an an armenian offer out and the wine will go gangbusters because people just want to try like some of the first winemaking in the world was happening in armenia and georgia in different areas in the Middle East, um, this is where a lot of the, uh, you know, the first first grapes were grown.
0: Go to the show notes. I'm going to put a link to PsalmSelect.com. They have some clubs available, listeners, that you can check out: the Explore Four, Psalm Six, Psalm Six Reds, and the Blind Six. And also, in 2020, they launched the annual Psalm Select Wine Education Fellowship. So you can check that out as well. Ian, what's the first wine that we're going to uh you want to taste? Uh we're going to taste the Andre Clouet
1: Grand Champagne. Cru Rosé, pound for pound one of the greatest champagnes in the world without question coming from a small village called Bouzy. And as you notice, is this one of the most beautiful labels you've ever seen?
0: We said that when I got it. I mean it's we did. it's so
1: the so the family used to make they used to print all the money hundreds of years ago for the the Royal family and, and different, you know, areas in France and um, Europe, they would print literally bonds and money for, um, for the government. And so they have these incredible printing presses that obviously are reflected in this label. So if anybody, I think there should be a link in the bottom uh, to this wine, um, but it's called the Rose number no. three and it's, you smell it. It's got that beautiful, leesy yeastiness. It's almost got this like strawberry croissant, like characteristic almost like this fresh brioche with like wild strawberry jam but it's not jammy wine it's just got that beautiful wild strawberry essence to it like like the most incredible fresh like miniature strawberry you've ever tasted in your life and it's got this little citrus component but you know you notice that the the bubbles are extremely small yes when you taste it it's it's got a voluptuous kind of full bodiness not not like heavy cream voluptuousness, more like 2% milk. Like in some champagnes, they can go from very light and watery to more viscous and rich and more venous. But this wine is under $50 a bottle. Um, We try to keep in the store all the time because it it over delivers and it makes us look good as a company. So if people go into the store and they're looking for champagne and they buy this, they're like, wow, these
0: guys really know what they're doing. (laughs) And I'm not a big champagne drinker, but this is really good. It has... As you said, that full body taste it has got that the hint of strawberry, almost like a like you said, like a strawberry creamsicle type of smell to it. It's very good.
1: Yeah, I I like it a lot. And, you know, this something uh, a lot of people don't know, but like really good champagne, even like a delicate rosé like this, one of the best pairings of all is fried chicken. So if you get really good fried chicken, freshly made with a nice crust on it, uh, you know, even if you're drinking Krug or Bollinger or whatever champagne you could find, ideally something a little bit more rich and creamy, and uh, and have some fried chicken with it um, on a weekend with some friends, and uh, you'll you'll uh, you can thank me later.
0: Let me ask you this question for our listeners that maybe opening up bottles of wine with us are going to get it. What is a tip for them and how to pick up the aroma notes after you've opened up a bottle? Uh, in
1: terms of aromatic profile and how to smell and kind of detect what yes. you smell. So we typically will break down the smells with, with fruit, flower, herbs, earth, and wood. Okay, fruits, flowers, herbs, earth, and wood. So if I'm smelling a wine, you might not smell much, but um, I will tell you that there's a tip. And if you're really serious <laughs> about wine, there's a there's a kit you can buy. And it's called Lanaise du Vin or L'Anez du Vin. And it's by Jean Lenoir, N-E-Z space D-U space V I V I N, basically La Nes du Vin, And it means the nose of wine. And it's a kit you can train your, your nose with, right? So if I tell you right now, remember what it smells opening up, you know, strawberry jam as a child and smelling that, or if opening up the peanut butter, the Skippy peanut butter and smelling that you can smell that right now. Right. What is, you know, Almost like, what is the smell of the garage that where you grew up, right? All of these memories of this, or like an old furniture shop or a new car, all of these smells are embedded in our taste memory. So when you smell a glass of wine, your mind usually brings up through your memory sense what these smells are and connects it to the glass of wine. What do I smell? I smell like these delicate berries. I smell cream. I maybe smell this kind of delicate, super delicate mushroom powder, but this wine is very much based on this wild berry creaminess. And for me, it reminds me of, you know, almost being a kid and like a little bit of a, like a, a strawberry Danish, you know, with that little cream cheese in it, that, and all of these memories come back. And I feel like a lot of the great champagnes have a real, a pastry essence kind of to them. Um, but I think, if you're smelling the glass of wine, first of all, you need to train your sense of smell, right? Some of us have great senses of smell like vision. Some people are 20-20. Some people need glasses. Um, but our sense of smell, most people have good senses of smell. And you need to train your sense of smell. And I think the the uh is a great way of starting that. And you basically have these containers, 1 through 54 of the most common aromatics found in wine. And you'll take number 13 out and you don't know what it is. And you'll put your nose and you'll say, okay, it smells like I'm going to say blueberry. And then you open up the actual tip and it's actually raspberry. And it's the exact molecular makeup that a raspberry has, but it's in liquid. And so you can basically start to to study, okay, this is mushroom. This is coffee. This is blueberry, raspberry, blackberry, uh, peach, orange, grapefruit, and then coming back to the wine next dinner party you're at, you're like, Oh, I'm smelling grapefruit and schnozberries. I'm just kidding. Um, you're, you're, uh, you know, you can kind of hopefully entertain people. That was a Willy Wonka's reference. Sorry. Um, and, uh, and you can hopefully entertain yourself and other people and, uh, you know, get into that, you know, geek mode, however you, you want. I mean, uh, some people just like to drink wine and, and have some fun and talk about your investments or whatever. And some people, you know, want to talk about what it tastes like, what it feels like, the history. And if you, you know, start reading, you know, the offers on Psalm Select every day, you'll see that, you know, we're we're more in the geek mode. And uh, we really get into a lot of the tasting notes, decanting instructions, and uh, really what makes the wine special. And I think that, you know, the more and more you get into wine, the more you want to learn about the story, and the more you want to geek out about it, because it's, it's like walking through the Louvre, right? You're just looking at the art. And if you studied art history, walking through the Louvre means a lot more. And, you know, just like if you have really got in and studied wine, the next time you pour a bottle of Burgundy from Chambolle musigny you're just encapsulated by it because you know the history. You know about them, the Cistercian and Benedictine monks and the Romans that planted it almost 2,000 years ago. And we're living this incredibly short life, really at the apex of winemaking in the world right now with some of these incredible vineyards that are dry farmed. And some of them are 140 year old vines and these grapes, you know, some of the vines, you need two vines to make one bottle. The yields are so small and the roots are going down 120 feet into the earth with no water, no irrigation on a hillside in the middle of France. You know, it, it gets me excited. I'll be honest.
0: All right. I'm going to bring in for the first time that I've been doing this show, my mother, Cheryl, she likes wine. She's been known to have a glass or two several times a week. What do you think of this first wine?
2: As you said, I'm not usually a champagne person, but when you explain, like, smelling it, and I, I'm seeing what you're saying about the strawberry, I think it's it's very enjoyable. I really like it. I think it's one that I would, I would definitely have it again. My question, I have a question for you, Ian. When you do this... And you're, you know, you, you say, let's try this new new glass of wine or champagne. Are you, do you do anything to clean your palate in between?
1: Not really. No? You know, your palate usually does it for yourself. If you okay. drink something, you know, your palate is pretty much about a 7 pH from what I understand. And so in the champagne that we're drinking is probably like a 2 point, I'm going to guess a 2.9 pH. You know, lemon juice is around 2.2 2 pH. So if you drink something that's very acidic just like taking a bite out of a lemon or drinking champagne, your salivary glands try to reset your palate because your body wants it to be neutral. And so your, your salivary glands te- technically kind of cleanse your palate. If you have something really intense, like say a really big Zinfandel and you're the next wine, you're going back to taste a delicate white. You can, you can take a sip of water or have a neutral cracker um, okay. uh, to cleanse your palate. Uh, but other than that, I don't take it too seriously. Other than if you're like in a really professional tasting, and you know you need to set your palate. Um, but most of the time, within about fifteen to twenty seconds, your your palate will reset. And the finish on most wines don't last more than fifteen to twenty seconds, anyway. So you should end up not really having much flavor on your palate to go into the next bite. Not like, but if you have like a a bite of a Reese's peanut butter cup on Halloween, for example, like you know, and then go into a dry glass of champagne like this that only has about seven grams per liter of sugar, it will taste tart and acidic. So that's one of the most important lessons is anytime you're having a food that's sweeter than the wine and you go back to the wine, it's going to taste tart. So if you have, you know, key lime pie with a glass of Sauvignon Blanc that's dry from New Zealand, you would think, Oh, New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc tastes like limes and tropical fruit. It's going to go great with this cheesecake. It's going to be a nightmare because anytime you have more sugar than the wine, uh and that's the basic tenets of food and wine pairing um as well as dessert pairings so if you're ever pairing dessert for a group making sure you have you know your chocolate cake is not with a dry glass of red wine yeah. you know your sweet chocolate cake is going with port or madeira um etc what's the number of wines you taste a week you know recently hasn't been that much i'm going to guess I'm going to guess about hundred to 150 right now, but that's not much. I've gone through periods of my life where it's like three or 400 a week. Um, Does it get hard to differentiate them? No, it's just, it's like, it's like looking at cars, you know, on a okay. lot, you know, like they're all different. Like you don't get tired, you know, it's, they're all so unique. You know, I think once you've really honed your sense of smell and taste, everything's so different, it's, but obviously, you know, I'm a, I'm a unique uh, person in the world of wine, uh, but I don't get sick of it. I mean, sometimes it depends if, if there's a bunch of bad wine on the table, I, I get tired of it, but, um, you know, and you get, it's a little depressing, you know, sometimes, you know, we get, we get sent a lot of wine from around the world and sometimes you'll taste 10 or 15 wines in a row. And you're like, I feel bad for the person who has to drink this, but, um, but that's, but that's why we only select, you know, about 10% of the wines that get sent to us. So if we really, you know, we make sure we kiss the frog so you don't have to, I think that's one of our I think that was a tagline. I thought that was a good one. You know, we don't, you know, make sure that we clearly explain what you're in for with this wine, what it tastes like, what it smells like. If it smells like earthy mushroom, um, in a cold forest, uh, damp bark and, you know, these kind of like wild berry things, like some wines do that might not interest you. You might want something that smells like strawberries and cream, like, you know, a delicious, you know, Sonoma coast, uh, Pinot Noir. That's a little riper with some new oak. Some people like that and there's nothing wrong with that. And we sell everything under the sun. Um, but I have to like it or else it doesn't kind of uh, make it
0: past the gates. So. I love it. One more question. Then we're going to get to bottle number two. Is there a certain time frame from the time you open a bottle of wine before you should pour it? Depends.
1: Um, each wine's different. Um, You know, some people can get out of bed and you can have a conversation with them for five minutes. And some people take a few hours and five cups of coffee. Um, You know, wine's the same way. If you open up an old bottle of Burgundy, sometimes the wine will be funky for the first 20 or 25 minutes. Sometimes the wine will die in 20, 25 minutes. Mm. It really depends on um, how old the bottle is. Like some really old bottles from the 30s and 40s, the wine will be, you'll pour it in a glass. It'll be glorious for 20 minutes and then die on minute 21 you know, alternatively, you might have a young bottle of Beaujolais or wine from the Canary Islands that you open up and it smells a little bit like rubber mercaptans because it's reductive. But an hour later, it's absolutely incredible because the oxygen really needed to help kind of open up the wine. So there's no real rules. Um, I would say on average, young wines should be decanted and served 20 minutes later. Um, and older wines... Some need to be decanted and and opened up for 30 minutes, 60 minutes, sometimes two hours. And sometimes wines literally need two minutes and they're going to die quickly. So that's why having somebody that has experience with that bottle and trusting them uh, makes sense. And all of our offers, we have decanting instructions and most of them are decant for 30 minutes, even white wines. A lot of them deserve to be decanted. Um, But most of the wines that you find in the supermarkets, they're mass produced. Um, by the tens of thousands of cases. And they're, they're manipulated in different ways to make sure that they're good three minutes from opening the cork, right? From pulling the cork. Because the mass pe- amounts of people, they expect you to pull the cork, they put it in the glass. If they don't like it, they dump it down the drain and go back to the store for a refund. They don't understand that, that there's different, you know, personality traits with each bottle of wine that deserve some time and a lot of the great bottles of wine in the world, you open them and pour them and they're not good for 20 or 30 minutes. They really need time to open up. Just like, you know, if you wake up at 7am and somebody meets you, they're like, God, that guy's not that nice, but you know, you're really nice about noon. Aren't you? So uh, uh, so There's so many analogies to make within wine and people, but it's very similar. And uh, it really comes down to being able to trust an expert and, uh, Other than that, if you if you just go to your local supermarket and you go to chest high and you pick a bottle, that wine's probably been um, made in a mass produced way, just like, you know, not to say it, you know, craft singles, you know, they're consistent. (laughs) And some of the stinky
0: cheeses don't appeal to everybody, (laughs) but they're more interesting. Tell us about the second bottle of wine we're going to taste.
1: All right. uh, Let's go ahead and do Paul Ox. Uh, So this is an Austrian red wine from a grape called Blaufrankisch. (laughs) And uh, so, yeah, it's a uh, Paul Ox. He's kind of, I think he was winemaker of the year um, in recent five years and he's, they make wine. So Blau Frank is just kind of like Cabernet Franc meets Pinot Noir. It's like a kind of almost like a, in essence, it feels like it was a love child between Pinot Noir and Cabernet Franc. It's got that slight, herbaceous edge that you get from great Chinon and kind of right bank uh, Bordeaux, but it also has this elegance and this purity of great burgundy. So you'll notice this wine is a a screw cap and this wine really starts to get good after about 30 minutes uh, open. So if you just opened it, you'll notice this is a wine that for me, gets me really excited. It's got that really, that cold, damp forest, almost like you're pulling you know, dark cherries and cranberries and off these wild plants in the middle of this, like,
0: you know, middle earth forest kind of thing. Reminds me of like a tilled garden, to be honest.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's like Lord of the Rings, you know, like Frodo made it like in the forest kind of smell to me, but it's, uh, it's very earthy. It's very old world. It feels like it wasn't made with a lot of fancy winemaking or new oak, but go ahead and taste it and chew it on the palate for three or four seconds. And you notice it has a little bit of grip earthiness has a little bit of twang, almost that little bit of like, kind of makes your palate go, Whoa. And you feel that rush of saliva kind of correcting the pH right now. Don't you? Mm -hmm. What this wine needs is you want this with like a beautiful piece of like grass fed steak, or, you know, you have this with uh, some, some Austrian dumplings with some, some ground pork and some beautiful sauce. Um, But this is a food wine. So, and where the champagne, you could have it on its own paired with sunshine by a pool. Uh, this wine should be paired in a perfect world with something like roast chicken, you know, even wild venison, um, you know, uh, you know, elk, any sort of like kind of wild game would be very good with this. Think about with uh, any with some potatoes with a little bit of dill in it, perhaps, um, along with a really beautiful plate of savory food. It's It's kind of a it's like an instrument in the orchestra, you know, having the flute on its on, by itself isn't as interesting as sometimes with a bunch of different instruments. So uh, I think that this wine amongst wine geeks, this is really one of the superstars, not very expensive. Um, it's called Edelgrud, Reed, Reed Goldster, Edelgruen Blau Frankish. And it's from Bergenland, which is an area just outside Vienna, um, which, which is known for some of the best red wines in Austria. And then the white wines in Austria come Northwest of, uh, of Vienna coming from like the Kremstal, the Comptal, the Wachau. And those are where some of my favorite white wines come from in the world. And there's a grape called Gruner Veltliner, which is really incredible. So Riesling and Gruner Veltliner, both made in dry styles coming from uh, outside of uh, Vienna. Um, and the Blau coming for more the eastern area of Vienna. Um, this is a really special bottle of wine. And again, Paul Ox is really one of the, the top of the top. Mother, what do you think of this wine?
2: How many bottles can I get?
1: Really? You like it. I'm so glad. I really
2: do. And I love the way you described it when you, you know, you said you chew on a little bit and the, um, the after effects of that, it was exactly the way it was.
0: I'll say this, Ian, what this wine needs is to be bought by the case. Oh, it's, it's, it's wonderful. Isn't that delicious? It is fantastic.
1: (laughs) And this wine, this retails for around $35 a bottle. So, you know, we always talk about price to quality, um, you know, and that's really kind of one of the tenets of our business is over delivering for price to quality. And I think most of the great wines of the world that I like to drink, and especially in my price point that I'm consuming um, are 25 to $50. And I say my sweet spot, personally, if I'm going to a wine store, I'm picking up wines that are usually 25 to $40. And so we really try to find great wines that people can engage with on a Monday night without breaking the bank. And I think that's really what it, the, the secret to our success is that, you know, people can buy a $29 bottle of wine from us. And, you know, the cool thing is you don't have to buy six bottles to get free shipping. You know, you can buy one bottle and put it in your build a case account. Three days later, you find, you know, clue rose, you put that in your account. And after 60 days, you can build your case and ship it to us. It's like one of the best kind of live clubs in a way, but we also do have those clubs. You talked about the explore Four, being our most popular club. That's growing very fast and that's 99 a month for four bottles so that's a great way to just let us do the work for you and it comes with a 24 page booklet of you know maps regions soil types all these you know geeky things if you really want to 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 read about it but uh there's there's so many ways to engage
0: with what we're doing i'm going to put links in the show notes to all of these wines that we're dealing with here also not that there's going to be any leftover of this because this is not going to last this is going to be emptied Is there a time period where you just need to dump it in where I know some people will put these rubber corks in it and put it on the counter or put it in the refrigerator for a week. Is that wine any good after that long? You know, if you
1: put it in the fridge, yes. So if you put it on the counter, most red wines are going to fall apart in two days, sometimes three or four, like this wine is probably going to last three or four days if you keep the top on it. But if you put it in the fridge, you can get a week out of a bottle of red depends on how full it is. If it's, you know, if you drink 80% of it and there's a bunch of oxygen in there, it's going to break it down more than if you only had a glass. So, you know, if you have drank more than a half of the bottle, you know, try to drink it in the next three or four days, leave it in the fridge with the cork in it. Um, you can get these kind of um, these sprays that kind of spray argon gas into the bottle. That's a really good thing to do. You can get it at like, you know, any, any basic, you know, wine superstore uh, like a total wine or whatever um, you can go in and get these sprays that, you know, kind of help protect the oxygen. So do you know why
0: wine goes bad? No, I do not. But if I'm going to guess, and I'll just throw a guess out here and this is strictly off the top of my head, either something happens with the tannins or the alcohol content. Okay. So there's a bacteria called acetobacter. So when you buy, you
1: know, you buy champagne vinegar, or if you buy red wine vinegar from the store for your salad, that was once wine and they add acetobacter, which is an acetic acid bacteria And that eats the alcohol and converts the alcohol to vinegar. So this glass that's sitting in front of me has these microscopic, I know it's not very appetizing, but acetobacter, just like there's, there's, there's yeast and bacteria and everything in the world, right? We don't really want to think about it. You're all all should become a germaphobe. But if you, if you leave this glass out until tomorrow morning, it's going to taste more like vinegar, right? And that's because acetic bacteria converted the alcohol to acetic acid which is vinegar. So that's how vinegar is made. Red wine, acetobacter is added to it, converts it to vinegar. You mix it with olive oil and pepper and you put it on your salad. Um, and, uh, and so when you're using these argon gases, oxygen feeds the acetobacter, right? So if you actually keep a cork in the bottle and you put a little bit of sulfur, like people do, you can age this wine for 15 years, right? You take the cork out and it's bad in three days because oxygen feeds the acetobacter. Converting the alcohol to vinegar.
0: I gotta tell you, the aroma of this wine is extremely pleasing to to me. I, I love the way it smells. It's just got hey, very savory. It's got yes this, like almost like that cold forest, almost the
1: bark with the tr- with, you know, that beautiful, fresh redwood forest in the morning right. kind of thing. But it's got this mushroomy thing. What else, what else are you getting? Not to interrupt you.
2: I also feel like when you um, take a sip of it and you just hold it there for a second, there's a smoothness mm-hmm. to it. I'm, I'm
0: sensing that. I'm getting i I'm getting a little hint and maybe this is off, but I'm getting a little hint of like a blackberry.
1: Ah. Yes. I would totally agree with you. Yeah. Like a, yeah. Like a wild blackberry for yeah. sure. Um, yeah. And there's that, there's a, there's an, a little bit of sour cherry in there. Yeah. This is definitely not a ripe, sweet fruit forward red. This is, this has more savory, more, more earthiness. And, you know, imagine you had like a nice, you know, tomahawk chop ribeye with this, right. (laughs) With some roast potatoes, you know, you want that fat or even you could do a nice pasta with this. It could work. It kind of has some attributes of some great Italian wines. I like, and uh, a lot of Northern Italian red wines can taste like this from Alto Adige, and from Piedmont and from Val for example, there's some incredible wines from Northern Italy, but if you're in Alto Adige in Northern Italy and just drive North, you're in Austria and then you drive Northeast and you're, you know, within whatever three or four hours drive probably or so from these vineyards. So it's not that far from Northern Italy. And uh, for me, Austria is probably one of the best kept secrets for, for most consumers. Um, but people are starting to explore that. Uh, but Austria, uh, is starting to come on most people's radars, in particular, the white grape Grüner Veltliner, you know, Blaufrankisch, Zweigelt, uh, St. Laurent, which are other grapes, they're not really happening yet. But if anybody's listening to this and wants to go on a great vacation, go to Vienna. And I'm telling you, go have Tafelspitz, which is this boiled beef drink, you know, even look up like, look up Tafelspitz, T-A-F-E-L, Spitz and cook it at home you know get one of these bottles of wine off Som select and you'll you'll be have a quick you know a quick travel to vienna but i'll tell you what one of the most beautiful areas of the world is the the, the land around around vienna and even you know it's called niederösterreich which means lower austria and then there's the more higher elevation areas that uh, like saint anton and some of the best skiing in the world i used to live uh, in a small village up there uh, in saint anton back in 04 so i had a ski season in Austria. And that was my first introduction to Austrian wine and food and dumplings and people and Jägermeister in the snow, like on long walks to the bars at three, you know, at 11 o'clock at night, you know, but, uh, that's another, another podcast.
0: I don't know if this is even fair to ask somebody that's a master sommelier, but do you have a favorite grape? I do. Um, you know, it's hard. It depends on the,
1: where I would be, but, If I had to drink one grape for the rest of my life, I think it would be Pinot Noir. I would have guessed Burgundy. Yeah, well, yeah. Pinot Noir is Burgundy. Okay, yeah. So, so Burgundy is a region. The most, uh, the red grape of Burgundy is Pinot Noir. The white grape of Burgundy is Chardonnay. Um, So, if I was going to drink one region for the rest of my life, it would be Burgundy, one hundred percent. And in Burgundy, you have Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, and I think Riesling is amazing as well um, In particular, with Thai food, um, I'm sure you've been to Lotus of Siam in Vegas. Yes. Okay. So, you know, my friend, my friend Bank owns a place called Lamai. Have you been there yet? You recommend it to me. I have not been there yet. It's on oh, my you list. Need, you need to go in there. Um, they have great cocktails as well. But uh, <laughs> so, so off dry Riesling and Thai food, one of the great pairings most people don't know about. Um, so, if you can find like a cabinet Riesling, which is off dry, cabinet and uh and have some like to go thai food with an off dry riesling lights out amazing tell us about wine number three all right uh so monte so this is uh from Colli di salerno and it's uh it's a blend of different grape varieties but it's it's probably one of the most exciting uh you know projects happening outside of naples italy and um so it's kind of got some new oak. It's got uh some new world varieties, some Alianico, and it's a pretty fancy wine. Let me go ahead and pour some one second. And this is going to appeal to those people who like Bordeaux. If you like, you know, really good modern Napa Valley Cabernet Sauvignon. Um yes, people, but, we are pouring really wine on the
0: podcast. We're just, you know,
1: <laughs> but it's got it's got this really earthy savoriness that in my opinion, you know, really ties in and it kind of encapsulates what's going on in Southern Italy, but it has a little modern mm. edge to it. There's some new oak they use here. And uh the uh the actual quality to the price point. This is a little bit more expensive. I think
0: this is roughly 75 a bottle. So this is I'm getting in in aroma hints, I'm getting like some dark cherry. Uh I, I feel like I'm getting a little bit of uh a little bit of leather maybe smell to that yeah yeah there's a little bit of
1: but you know it's 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 got like a vintage leather you know it's like uh it's like your friend that's got the 84 corvette in the garage you know but he hasn't driven it much and you go in and sit inside you know it's got that slight vintage almost antique aromatic to it it's not like where if you try a lot of these uh uh a lot of these uh You know, modern Napa Cabernet, sometimes they smell like a new Bentley, like you get into a brand new, really expensive car and that aromatic profile. This has more of that vintage Peugeot or vintage Corvette um, uh, characteristic. But, yeah, this is this is mostly Cabernet Sauvignon, a little bit of Alianico. So Alianico is the most kind of famous grape in Campania. So this is this is grown just, you know, just outside where pizza was invented in Naples. So, you know, there's a big mountain called Mount Vesuvius. There's a town called Salerno close by. There's Naples, uh, uh, just just not a, not a far uh, train right away. And you, there's a lot of volcanic areas. So Mount Vesuvius, of course, erupted, creating a lot of um, volcanic sediment um, in the area. And they've come with some of the top clones in the world, planted them, Merlot, Cabernet, Alianico, um, fancy, you know, winemakers, kind of modernizing winemaking. And But it's not too manipulated and fancy right this is an authentic it feels like you're almost drinking the soil in a sense like if you take a sip with me let's chew it for about seven or eight seconds like mouthwash not too intense and really kind of feel it um on your taste buds okay swallow it and breathe out your nose you feel the texture feel the tannin kind of Yes. In the front of your lips, yes. The top of your tongue. And now the finish starts, right? Seven seconds, eight seconds. It continues, right? This is when you take your bite of food and all everything's starting to happen on your palate. You know, you have your, you know, bra- braised beef tagliatelle with Parmesan cheese and fresh parsley right now. The finish is still going, right? Yes. Your palate, it's still singing. Still going. This is a long finish, right? Yes. Oh. Coming on. We're coming on twenty seconds. We still have flavor, don't we? Sour Big cherry flavor. Yes. Fennel and that kind of that leather and tar and red tobacco leaf. I'm getting now, right? And it's continuously going. And now we're approaching thirty seconds, and it's still there. And so that's what you're paying for. You're paying for these complexity. You know, the Paul Ox might have lasted 15 to 18 seconds, you know, but you know, we can go back and test that. But uh, you know, and then you know, but every wine has different complexities. I'm still tasting it. Right? So am I. I so this two. this is almost like a minute-long finish, which usually uh is reserved for the great wines of the world. So Monte Vitrano, this is in our store, I believe it's 68 dollars. I haven't looked, but uh there's not much left. Um they were they were you know asking me what wines I wanted to share today, and I thought that these were kind of outside the normal comfort zone of most people. And I think if you're going to learn about what we do at Psalm Select, it's taking people into really interesting and exciting new regions of the world. Uh, and, uh, and hopefully making them, you know, change the CD in your car, right? It's like you don't need to listen to Nirvana from 1995 <laughs> until 2021, like change the CD every day. Right. And, and listen to some, Listen to some, some French music, some Italian music, right? Yes. Maybe some German rap on occasion, even though it's weird, you know, it's, but that's what sounds like does. It's like, we try to give you this arsenal of experience that the world is offering, you know, whether that's, you know, you know, ordering different types of food, uh, or going to different restaurants and, in kind of ex- expanding, whether that's Cantonese food or Thai or Vietnamese, you know, uh, Ethiopian food. There's so many cool things in San Francisco to explore, but the same thing with the world of wine, you know, there's hundreds, hundreds of new appellations that are growing, you know, including Bolivia and South America, Patagonia down in Southern Chile, Argentina, Tasmania, and Australia, you know, the areas outside Victoria and Melbourne, um, uh, Southern New Zealand, the extremes of Southern New Zealand outside Central Otago, um, Eastern Europe, South Africa. Like
0: there's just there's so many things to to experience and, and hopefully we can be your guide. Before I give you uh, another compliment on this wine, Mother, what do you think of this wine?
2: Well, I I love the way you explain how when you hold it in your mouth for a moment, I am still I still can feel yeah. that. I still feel that it's been how many it's been a minute at least, maybe longer. A couple, yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. So I love that about this wine. It's really it's a real drinkable wine. I have a question. So when you swirl your glass and you have the legs. Yeah. Okay. Tell me about what does that mean?
1: So the legs are a function like how fast they come down. So the legs are a function of alcohol, basically, or sugar. So okay, if you swirl your glass around. Okay, yeah. almost like tilt it away from yourself, like you're looking at the color down on the down on the um, the table, and swirl it around, and then stand it up, and you'll see the legs come down. Yes, the first ones come down pretty fast, and the second ones come down very very slow. Right, uh-huh. so that shows you okay. that this wine, if it doesn't have sugar, has quite a bit of alcohol, but not too much. I'm going to guess this wine has somewhere around 14%, maybe a little higher. It says 13.5%. <laughs> If you have like a 16 or 17% Zinfandel coming from Dry Creek, those legs come down really slow. If, you're, if you have tequila in your glass that's 40% alcohol, they come down almost like honey. They're so slow because it's so viscous that alcohol is very viscous, right? So if you have an 11% uh, muscadet, white wine from muscadet, and you swirl it, it comes down almost like water. Right. But if you have a very high alcohol, Oaky California Chardonnay, that might be close to 16 percent alcohol, even though it says 14 percent on the label. I'm not going to get into that, uh, but it's a function of alcohol and sugar. And so you can also have like a German Riesling that might be seven percent alcohol, but it's a late harvest and there might be 200 grams per liter of sugar. And that will also cause the legs to come down slowly. So alcohol or sugar or both. Um, cause viscosity causing slow legs. And you know what, you know, it's funny when like people are in a steakhouse and they're drinking this big cab and they're like, Oh God, look at the legs on that. You know, uh, you know, that's great. You know, if that makes you happy. With
0: their country club pour. Yeah. yeah you know, country. Did, did I teach you about that? Yeah, you did. Club pour, yeah. So you gotta,
1: you gotta, the country club pour is when you have a glass of wine that's poured completely to the brim, you know, they're like, you know, she's like, pour it to the top, honey. And you're like working at the country club and you pour the Rombauer literally a millimeter from the top. And that's obviously you can't smell the the, the glass. So, you know, a normal pour, you know, you have a glass of Cabernet that can hold 20 ounces. You typically pour five ounces and that allows you to enjoy the aromatic profile. Um, or if you just want a 10 ounce country club pour just to get a nice buzz, that's fine too. Really, it's your life. You live how you want.
0: Is there a little coffee smell to this wine i get a little bit of that yeah and i'm not a coffee drinker but i i have a little i'm getting a little hint of a little coffee and that's why i wanted to ask you know, if it was just I me Yeah. yeah
1: almost like a, it's almost reminds me of like a green coffee bean not like a roasted toasted coffee bean um but it reminds me of that kind of like green unroasted coffee um a little bit and it's got again that like leather cedar yes has, has has characters of like great brunello de montalcino with a little bit of age and it also has character of older Bordeaux to me, it has, you know, it's got that little kiss of tomato leaf in there as well. So it's got this tomato leaf, like wild herbaceous, almost like a cut flower stem. Like if you, you know, if you just cut some flowers and you smell the stem, there's that hint of herbaceous, almost chlorophyll underneath all of this, you know, uh, kind of crunchy red fruit, you know, that vintage leather, one of, one of, uh, yeah, one of our, one of our contributing writers always talks about uh, vintage leather in his tasting this vintage leather. I like that. You know, when you go into this old antique shop and there's like the $8,000 couch and you sit down on it and it's already been used 35 years, (laughs) you know, and that's the, that's the vintage leather. Next time just lean over and smell that smell, smell it just for taste and memory. And you'll call (laughs) me and be like, Ian, I got the
0: vintage leather now. What is the question you have for Ian?
2: In the first podcast that you did in today, you've mentioned the decanters. Yeah. Let's just say you're entertaining at home. You're going to open bottles of wine. I'm sensing that you really are. We need to decanter the wine, not just open. the bottle.
1: Yeah, you know, this wine yeah. is showing extremely well. I just popped the bottle 20 minutes ago or maybe 30 minutes ago and I poured in the glass. It's really showing, really showing beautifully. But if you're throwing a dinner party, you know, first of all, temperature, you know, you want to make sure this wine is ideally around 65 degrees Fahrenheit. You know, if if you're storing your wine, it should be around 55 degrees, pull it out a half hour before the party, pop the cork and decant it. And the wine will go from 55 to 65. Ideally, if you're living in a summertime and you don't really have your AC going and your room is 74 degrees, throw the bottle in the freezer for eight minutes and set the timer Trust me, set the timer or else you'll find it, especially if you've been, if you've been drinking and you're having, you know, and you find there's a warm <laughs> bottle of red wine that's 75 degrees. You're like, oh, I'm going to follow Ian's directions. You'll wake up the next morning and, <laughs> and find a frozen bottle of $80, you know, Montevitrano in your freezer. So uh, so throw the bottle for eight to 12 minutes, depending on how the warm the room is. If it's a 77 degree room or like 12 minutes, if it's 72 or 74, eight minutes, and that'll get the wine to the low 60s. You can pull the cork decant it in the wine vast majority of the time is ready in 15 to 20 minutes. If you smell a little bit of funkiness, whether that smells like almost like a, a fresh rubber tire, that's reduction in red wine. And sometimes that's fine. That just means you should uh, let it sit out. Um, and if it doesn't go away, pour it back in the bottle and have the bottle the next day and it should usually be perfect. So that's called reduction, which is the opposite opposite of oxidation. So oxidation is too much oxygen makes the wine smell like it's been sitting out for a couple of days. And then you have reduction, which is the wine starving for oxygen. And that kind of throws out different kind of aromatic profiles, specifically um, a little bit of like a rubber tire.
0: In all your travels and everything you've done, you got to have a good, funny wine story for us. Did I tell you
1: about me blind tasting in late night Paris with my dad back in 07? No. All right. So I meet this guy named Marco Pelletier <laughs> And, uh, you know, he was the wine director at La Taillevant and I was like nearly passed out my first day in Burgundy. And, uh, so we're sitting here at this restaurant in in Burgundy and my dad's like, sees these 12 guys from Montreal and they're all blind tasting. And he's like, Ian, you need to go over there and say hello. I'm like, there's no possible way I'm going to go there. Um, I can't even talk right now. I'm so tired. Next thing you know, my dad goes and tells this really famous sommelier. My, my son's a young sommelier in Vegas. We're on our first wine trip. Um, you know, he doesn't want to come say hi. he comes and grabs me and brings me next to him. Next thing you know, we're blind tasting Burgundy. So I'll make this first part of the, 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 uh, the story short, but, um, so they're all blind tasting Burgundy, nailing vintage producer village. I'm just totally out of my realm. Right. I don't know what I'm doing. Super nervous. And they bring this and they pour me a wine. And I was just in Chateauneuf to pop the day before and I put my nose in the glass. I'm like, this is not burgundy. This is chateauneuf du Pop. So they were screwing with me. And I called O4 de Pop and I nailed vintage and everything. And so they were like, everyone stood up and they were trying to mess with me as an amateur and teach me something, <laughs> but I got it. And so he kind of, he kind of like, Hey, you know, I run La avant which is a three-star Michelin restaurant with one of the best wine uh, selections in the world. And he's like, I'd like to invite you and your father for dinner. We'll make it special for you. And, uh, so we show up, have like the dinner of our life. I'm 27. You know, my dad is, you know, at that point in his mid fifties, he's a chiropractor from Huntington beach and, uh, and he just loves food and wine. So we're just like 17 courses drinking crazy old wines. And then they're like, we're going to blind taste late night in Paris and a bunch, bunch of people coming and his assistant Frank just won the best, some best young sommelier of France. And I was like, Wow. You know, same thing I did like, you know, whatever, you know, five years later in America. And, and, and so we show up to this blind tasting, they, you know, close the metal grate. We're all sealed in this place. There's six of us blind tasting insane wines. And so finally, like towards the end of the night, they, uh, they pass this glass out and they're like, they give it to Frank, the best young sommelier of France. And he won the best, the Millier Ouvrier de France a few years ago. So he's like, Every four years they do an Olympics of France, and he's like the top dog. And uh, so we basically uh, blind. He blind tastes this wine, and he's like, "I think this is a '92 uh, Nuits Saint Georges on the north side." And, and I'm no, no. So I, I sorry, I blind tasted first, and I called Von Romanet. That's right. And then so I was super nervous, like, how far off am I going to be? And I called '92. Von Romanet, which is a village in Burgundy. So they give it to him, and he's like, "I think you are close, very good." And I was like, "What am I close? What are you talking about?" This guy is literally, you know, leaps and bounds above my 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 level. And he's like, "I think it's 93. and I'm like, "Okay." And my dad looks at me and I'm like, "He and he maybe got close," and uh, and he's like, "I think it's from Northern Nuits Saint George," which we're talking a five hundred yard walk right from the vineyard. I think it is, and uh, even though I'm making an educated guess. And uh, they pulled the bottle out, and it was 1929. And uh, it was a Charme Chambertin and a Grand Cru from Burgundy. So we were about 10 miles away, both of us, but we were 70 years off or something like that. So, but it's funny because we had no, I mean, the wine was so good, but the wine showed no evolution. Why? Because Marco got it in Burgundy two days before and brought it home on the train. Not moving it, but the wine had never seen light. It was covered in mold, you know, 50 feet below the earth, sitting at 44 degrees for 70 years, and that shows you how important light and temperature are to evolution of wine. And you looked at the wine and you thought it was a 20 year old bottle of Pinot Noir, slight oranging. But if you had that bottle sitting on a shelf in your, you know, Las Vegas storage, whatever, for 70 years, the wine would be like light amber and it would smell like you know sandalwood right but the wine had all this perfume and uh that was kind of uh my claim to fame i was so right but so wrong but i was that <laughs> i was next to one of the best sommeliers in the world literally and uh and it just showed me a how much i needed to learn and and it really inspired me to keep learning because being next to people that are so knowledgeable um like these guys uh it just inspired me to want to be like them and to be able to be looked up to one day and be able to teach others and, and just share this incredible experience of wine with the world. It's, it's honestly, I mean, we're floating on this planet around the universe drinking gold burgundy. It's like, it's, it's, it's an interesting life, you
0: know? Hey everybody join the all new members area on my before the lights podcast website, the salute chin chin package includes access to the extra five Shout out on a future show, some bonus content, the Zoom calls. Also we're going to have some rewards for you. Get the brand new limited edition poker chip. It looks absolutely fantastic. You're going to get 10% off all merch as well. Your name added to the show notes. To join for only 799 a month, go to slash support That's slash support Let me say this, A, thanks for coming on the show, not once, but twice, B, for sending these fantastic wines, and C, for educating not just me, but listeners on the history of wine, how to enjoy wine, how to get more involved with wine. You're the best, Ian. I appreciate it.
1: You know, hey, listen, call me anytime, bro. I'll come back. Trust me, I probably (laughs) will do that. (laughs) Well, well, you guys enjoy Vegas, and uh, thanks for having me on again. It was just a lot of fun.
0: Make sure you go to before the com slash merch. That's before the com slash merch for all your holiday shopping. And follow me on Instagram at BeforeTheLights Podcast. I'm Tommy Canale. Thank you for listening to Before the Lights. And until next time, everybody, I salute a Jin chin.